Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. <clears throat> I couldn't resist um, giving a devotional about a wall since we're going to be, Lord willing, building a fence today. So I thought the object lesson for all of us today while we're out there building a fence together would help us remember a little bit of what's said today. I asked my sons last night, hey, what did I teach the last devotional? Because I couldn't remember. They couldn't remember either. Does anybody here remember? I don't remember what I taught at the I last... The only one we've been able to do here was, uh, I remember Jonathan and David. Yeah. Was it about Jonathan and David? Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad somebody got something out of that. You know, I'm not sure. Hopefully I did at the time. But anyways, I thought it would be good to help us connect today's devotional to the work that we'll be doing. I really enjoyed listening to what you said just then, uh, Trent, about uh, leisure and its connection to rest. And I think we'll see as we consider this that God had worked this into Nehemiah. I think it shows up in his prayerful response to everything that was going on in his life. And I was reminded of, uh, I'm working through Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, the rare, rare jewel of Christian contentment right now. And it reminded me of uh, Psalm 46, where the Lord uh, says, Be still and know that I am God. And Burroughs talks about contentment in a, in a myriad of ways, but one of the things that he says is, if our lives are like a structure, then our, our bedroom, our chamber, uh, the inner chamber of our soul is occupied always and only by Christ himself. And that is where we go. That is where we go to contemplate, to meditate, and to be still and know that he is God. And when we are in perhaps this leisure spot, then that place within us is never occupied by anything other than Christ himself and his word and his glory in that inner chamber of our souls. I think we see that in Nehemiah. So a little bit of background about the book of Nehemiah. Um, it starts when uh, he is still uh, in captivity. Uh, the Persians are in charge at this time. And he hears uh, that the Jews in Jerusalem are in bad shape. <clears throat> They're distressed, greatly distressed. They're reproached by God's enemies. And the walls and the gates of the city are destroyed. Uh, it says the walls are broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. And so earlier in this book, we're gonna, I'm going to read chapter 4. He has prayed when he hears about this. His response is to pray. And it's a, a beautiful uh, exemplary prayer for us Christians. And <clears throat> then he goes and asks the king of Persia to send him to Jerusalem. It's a big risk. And it's uh, a beautiful scene there. He prays there also when he's talking to the king. The king agrees. And now at this point in chapter 4, he has arrived and the people uh, under his leadership and his inspiration uh, by the work of God, they've begun to rebuild the wall together. So that's where we are in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I'll read aloud. I'm going to read all of chapter 4. And I think it's worth noting the things that I'm going to emphasize before we read it. I'm going to look at God's enemies. We're going to see that we always have enemies. They did then and we do now. Uh, but we're also going to see that we've got a mission. Uh, they had a mission. We have a mission. And we're going to see some of the tactics of God's enemies. Now, we're not going to look at all of the types of enemies that we have. 
We have our flesh. There are spiritual uh, enemies that are against us. Uh, but there are individuals who are God's enemies who come against the church. And we'll look at the, some of their tactics and we'll see uh, how God's people uh, go through doing uh, the calling that he has on us in the midst of <clears throat> enemies who come against us. Prayer, maintaining an undaunted focus upon our task and not getting distracted, continuing together in organized work towards the goal that God has given to us, always remaining watchful and prepared to fight. And I'm not going to over-spiritualize this, but clearly that's spiritual warfare as well, but it's also physical warfare. Remaining together and not allowing the external threats to divide us from one another and sweating together to the end, understanding that what we're called to do is hard. There's rubbish in the way. We get stinky. We get dirty. And it's going to be a hard path forward uh, to do God's work in this life. But it's worth it. And it's joyful. <clears throat> and we should consider Christ uh, as we see the work that's set ahead of us. So chapter 4 with those things in mind. <clears throat> but it so happened when Sinbalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall... He was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sinbalat, Tobiah, <clears throat> the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and more armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah." Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand 
They worked at construction, and with the other, they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, we ask that we would be taught by your Spirit and your Word today, that you would further renew each of our minds, Lord, from youngest to oldest, and that through this you would be pleased, Lord God, to bless us to be more like Christ, to be transformed into his image more today through this time in your Word together. For the sake of your glory, that we may enjoy you and serve you more in this day and each day to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the mission that they have? If you look, if you turn back in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, 17 and 18, Nehemiah says, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may, longer, may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they have this mission to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that has been broken down and to rebuild its gates. Now you know Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple and it mentions the walls as well. And Nehemiah is primarily about the rebuilding of the walls and also the great, great and extensive work of reformation that Nehemiah accomplishes there in his leadership in, in that time amongst the Jews. Now, my, my view on the chronology here is that these walls have been broken down, and the reason he's surpri surprised is because it's been some time since the first group went back during the time of Cyrus, and they had rebuilt the walls. And I believe that what happens in Esther with that great battle between the Jews and all of the uh, pagans throughout the kingdom is what led to, in 509, the destruction of those walls that had been partially rebuilt or perhaps even mostly rebuilt. And that's why he's shocked and saddened because he had expected those walls to have been rebuilt already. So they've got to rebuild them again at this point in time as a result of that destruction. Now, we have a mission, don't we? Uh, I think someone could probably quote it for me. I'll read it from the Scriptures or someone could quote it if they want to. We're going to call it the Great Commission. And, and you can quote it for me if you want to or I'll read it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. <clears throat> I'll read it. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, so where is, where is this happening? It's in Galilee, okay? It's up in Galilee. When is this happening? It's after his resurrection during the 40 days that he spent with them, instructing them before he was ascended. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So this is our mission as Christians. This is what we're called to be involved in in our daily lives, 
is making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to follow everything that is written in God's Word, trusting in His presence and His power to see us through to complete this task in the earth before His return. This is our Great Commission. And of course, God often breaks this up into little bits and pieces. You know where your part is in this. Each of you should know where your part is in this. You're not trying to disciple every nation all at once because you're not going to get anything done. And as we'll see when we look at chapter 3 of Nehemiah, each family had their piece of the wall that they were called to, to build. And we each have our calling. You have your mission in your life, and you'll face enemies that try to get you off the path that God has called you on. We're, when we're building this fence together today, we're probably going to bump into things that try to get us off our, our path. Maybe it'll be me talking too much or, or, or whatever else. We'll we, be laughing too much. Or, or Quentin laughing too much. But we don't want to get off task today, do we? We want to stay focused on building this fence today. So that's our mission, and we have been called to it daily. But we have enemies. They had enemies. We're first introduced in chapter 2, verse 10, and this is the theme of God's enemies. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth. When Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So the enemies of God are deeply disturbed anytime they see the kingdom going forward. In chapter 4, verse 1, listen to how they're described. Furious and very indignant. And they're even mocking. That's one of their tactics that comes forth from their fury and their indignance towards God's kingdom. And then in verse 7, it says that the, they became very angry. So this is something to bear in mind. Do we have enemies today? And, and this, is what we, this is something we see over and over again is those who are not in Christ, those who are controlled by their sin like you used to be, like I used to be, those who are not brought into the kingdom who don't love Christ and exist for His mission, they hate the progression of the kingdom of God. And, and it's irrational. They don't even know why they hate the progression of God's kingdom. So we need to understand that the enemies of God that we face are very similar. They're irrational. They're angry. And, and it's very important for us to realize this because I think so many of us just have a really hard time believing that someone can be cruel and malicious and angry for no reason. But that's an accurate characterization, characterization of those advanced in the ways of hating God and his people like these individuals are. There are people like that in the world. And probably you and I would be in that very spot eventually, apart from Christ, if we're not for his grace in our lives. So do we have enemies today? We do. Will they be motivated by these same things? Yes, they will. So we need to expect to have enemies. If you, and you've heard it said, if your life is not generating enemies for good reasons, because you're advancing the kingdom, then... What's going on? You know, are you really working on the wall if you don't have enemies like this who are coming against you or your church or your people? Next, not like we go and seek enemies, right? They weren't seeking enemies. They were just building the wall. Next, what are the tactics of God's enemies? 
If you look at chapter 2, verse 19, we see this and it's everywhere in today's world as well. Listen. They laughed at us and despised us and then they made false accusations. What is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So whenever the enemies of God become angry at the advancement of the kingdom of God, you can expect them to begin to act in this, in this way, to laugh at the people of God, to make fun of them, to tear down what they're trying to do, to use scornful words, and even to bring false accusations to try to get them in trouble with the civil magistrate. Do you see that today? Is, is justice actually occurring in our nation today? The mocking, I want you to also realize, is repetitive. The devil's kingdom always uses repetitive mocking. You see it in verse 3. Whatever they build, if even a fox fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So they are repetitively mocking their efforts. They're wasting their time. They're so stupid. No one's ever going to believe the gospel. The nations of the world are never going to believe the gospel. No one's ever going to believe that silly book full full of myths that you're teaching to people. What is wrong with you? Why don't you get with the times? We're going to face it over and over again. You should expect it. Now, in addition, something that will happen is called conspiracy. Uh, Verse 2 says he spoke um, before his brethren and the army of Samaria. So he brings, he gathers forces. That's called a conspiracy. They conspire together with all those who are evil. And then they stir up. They stir up hatred through what they say. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? So you can see that this tactic of the enemy is to gather others and to get them equally as angry as they are and to stir them up. Finally, they will try to kill Christians. Okay? They'll become... Um, they'll become murderous uh, in, their, in their approach. And we, we see that in uh, verse 11 of chapter 4, uh, verse 8 of chapter 4, the conspiracy. They're going to attack them. They're going to confuse them. And then if that's not going to work, they're going to kill them. And, and again, this is a really important point. Don't think that the enemies of God have changed. Like if we think about the devil's ultimate goal for this earth, What would you think the devil's ultimate goal is? Frustration. Frustration. Okay. He wants every person on earth dead. If God's goal is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and take dominion and and subdue the creatures and have a world beautified and filled up with the people worshiping and serving God. What does the devil want? He wants to stand on the earth and shake his fist in God's face and say they're all dead. And the cruelest way to kill us would be the devil's preference. Well, brothers and sisters, the enemies of God have the same. They've been captured by the devil. They want us dead. A friend of mine, um, he was a Marxist and uh, before he became a Christian, and he was a devoted Marxist. He was an active, worldview-advancing, knocking-on-door Marxist communist. And they used to sit around and try to figure out some legitimate use for Christians. And the only thing they could come up with using reason was to kill them and use them for fertilizer. That was the only use that they could come up with for Christians. 
And I think that's, you know, been borne out in history when we see the way the devil and kingdoms controlled by hatred of God's people, that just irrational, uh, over-the-top, excessive hatred and desire to kill, bloodthirstiness. So this is how God's enemies work. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? Where do we fix our eyes, right? Well, listen, don't look at the enemies. We need to understand them, okay, but we don't look and focus our gaze on the enemies because, you know, we can talk too much about our enemies. We can talk too much about what the Department of Justice is doing. We can talk too much about this president or that senator. We can talk too much about this business or this nation, right? We need to fix our eyes on Christ. And that's the very first thing. God's faithful people pray when we face resistance. We pray before we face resistance, and we continue to pray in the face of resistance. Now, you'll notice, I'm not going to go to all of these for the sake of time, but in, in verse 4, Nehemiah's first response to this bad news is to pray. And then in verses 5 through 10, we get that model prayer where he confesses his sin. He repents for himself and for the Jews, and he intercedes for his nation, and then he lays these very specific requests before God about what's going on. This is how we respond to our enemies today as well, is we look to our king and we trust in him and we are able to be still and know that he is God and not have any fear or panic come over us. In chapter two, verse four, he's before the king and he's sad. The king notices. So it's not as though he actually necessarily goes and intentionally talks to the king. It's, it, you can tell from his prior prayer that he's probably going to, <clears throat> the king says, why are you sad? It's kind of dangerous to be sad around the king. He sends up a spontaneous prayer. So we're always praying. Today, if the post falls over or if we spill the concrete or if I'm talking too much, we're going to have spontaneous prayers as we go, aren't we, to get the work done. <laughs> now, in chapter 4, verse 4, we see imprecatory prayers. Do you pray? Does anyone want to tell me what imprecatory means? Besides Quentin, imprecatory? Praying down God's judgment. That's right. We, 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 always, we always pray for blessings frequently, right? Did you know that as Christians we can pray curses onto God's enemies? Do you do, you do that? Do you, do you, I mean, not from a prideful heart. Right? We certainly want them to be saved and come to Christ. But, I mean, listen to this prayer, this imprecatory prayer. In uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 4. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Okay? So that's the Haman prayer, right? He built the gallows, and who swung from that rope? He did. So we can pray for God's enemies, the schemes that they're trying to bring against us, to boomerang back on their own heads. That's a Gallio, what happened in Acts uh, 18 as well, when the Jews in Corinth tried to come against Paul using the Romans, and Gallio threw them out and used force on them. Listen to this one. Give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Okay? Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Wow. Like, I don't know if I could ever pray and ask for God to not forgive somebody. But that's quite an imprecatory prayer from a prophet of God. Nehemiah wrote this book. He's a prophet of God. 
Surely he was not in sin, in sin when he prayed that prayer. So do you pray spontaneously? Do you confess and repent and intercede and lay your request before God in the face of the challenges that you face? And do you pray in precatory prayers? And do you do the nevertheless prayers? that In, in verse 9, we see in chapter 4 where they were going to come and attack them and create great confusion. And when you're facing just the ever-mounting and, and accelerating and increasing resistance of the enemies, because the devil doesn't just come a little bit. His enemies don't just come a little bit. They keep coming, they keep coming, they keep coming. Do you have the nevertheless prayers? Where you say, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And so that your response to the ever-escalating attacks is ever-escalating prayers and not to be frustrated, not to give up, but to keep on praying. We should expect sneak attacks. We should expect murderous attacks. We should expect all kinds of things against us. And our response should always be in greater fervency than their hatred comes forth our loving prayers and our faithful prayers towards God for his kingdom, for his glory, and against our enemies. God's faithful people pray. They maintain an undaunted focus. They do not get distracted. Verse 6 says, so, so that in their response to the resistance, they didn't call a committee meeting to determine whether or not they were supposed to continue the wall. Right? Well, you know, we're kind of facing a lot of resistance here. You know, this, these guys are pretty strong. They're, they're, they're our civil magistrates. I mean, we need to think this through. No. We built... The wall. Their response to the resistance from these evil people was to call them evil, to call them evil, and to move ahead and to not submit to their threats. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. They kept moving in the work that they were given. And then in verse 15, we see again everyone to his work. So it requires all of us to be in this together. Do you see the synergy of, I mean, do you think they all just agreed all at once? Maybe, but probably not. They needed one another in order to stay in the fight together. They needed to be on their part of the wall and look apart to the other, the other part of the wall and see that family over there doing their work with sword and trowel in hand as well. We need to maintain an undaunted focus and we need to continue in organized work. I want to emphasize the importance of being organized. So often in today's world, because the church is so fragmented, there's no organization. Churches aren't working together. The gospel in our community, how much more could we do, Trent? Could we see happen here in our community if Christians could work together in the community for the gospel? We don't have to only work with Reformed folks, right? We don't have to only work with Christians exactly like us. You think all the people standing on the wall at Nehemiah's time agreed on every little aspect of Jewish theology at that time? They had a mission. We have a mission. We can take the gospel out together in this world with others. So when I'm talking about organized, it's, it's really important to consider organized work. And I'll, I'll ask you to just read through chapter 3 of Nehemiah and he just describes where each family is supposed to be from spot to spot on the wall, from gate to gate, all the way around the wall. It's kind of cool if you want to get a diagram sometime and look at it. And the whole thing was covered. And they're building the walls and they're putting in gates as they go. <clears throat> so not only do, you, do we maintain an undaunted focus, constantly praying, 
But it's important to be organized in our work. And that, that togetherness that's a part of organized work is really important. And I just tell you, there's such a great weakness in the Christian world today. I long, like we've, I've prayed and hoped that we might see some sort of, you know, Protestant Evangelical Ministers Association, you know, grow up here in our area to be able to work together for the gospel in our area. Um, who knows what God may do. Next, we're always watchful. Okay, and this ties together with the knowledge of the devil's endless fury against God and his people and that he's going to be fueling that in his enemies constantly. And if the Lord Jesus chooses not to draw them to himself, they're going to progress down that hard-hearted hatred towards God's people. They're going to be constantly looking for a new way to attack and harm God's people. And we see that in verse 9, they set a watch day and night. We have to be vigilant and always on guard against these attacks. And we have to have the trumpet ready. And this is another example of being disorganized. Uh, how do we communicate with one another? How do we rapidly share news with one another about things that are going on? There are publications that are out there in the theological world where we see the, the theological doctrinal walls of Christianity being torn down today and things being discussed in faithful denominations that should never be discussed. Those questions have been answered and they, you need to go somewhere else if you want to talk about that. So we have to be watchful and understand what's happening and keep our eyes open at all times. And you know, shepherds, the pastors are, are called watchmen. Uh, that's what we're supposed to be about, uh, is to be on the lookout for these dangers. We need to be prepared to fight. As we're doing the work of God, we have the right to self-defense, okay? So if these folks had come upon the Jews and actually tried to carry out their murderous attacks, the Jews would have responded with their bows and their arrows and their swords, and rightfully so. So like I told you, I'm not going to over-spiritualize this. You need to be prepared to defend your family, okay? And, and I'll push this and say it's a Sixth Commandment violation if you don't take this seriously. You have a responsibility to protect yourself, and not just yourself, but your family members and even those other human beings within your sphere of protective influence as you're out and about in this world. And so we need to take that very seriously, but obviously there are spiritual, spiritual messages here for us as well, and we need to be in the spiritual battle first and foremost. But we are not only spiritual warriors. We also need to be prepared to fight, physically fight if we need to. And, and I just, we have to emphasize this because when you look at what's going on in the world today, and the level of intentional polarization that's taking place in our world today, and the dehumanizing speech that's going on, and the daily accepted murder of babies that's already going on, and the acceptance of euthanasia that's already there, and the attitude that people have towards Christians in general, we, we need to be prepared to defend ourselves. And if you don't think this way, and if you haven't considered that, then you're not living in reality. That is the world that we always live in, and it fluctuates up and down during time, during various times throughout history. I wouldn't necessarily be as adamant with these words in 1735 in America. But right now, we live in a world where Christianity and Christians are being described with dehumanizing speech and are being attacked in the law, and no one's going to their, to their defense. So I may have gone a little bit more into that than I needed to, 
But I think a lot of times, rightfully as Christians, the very last thing we want to do is harm another human being, right? And so we tend to perhaps not consider our Sixth Commandment duty like we should. Now, they were armed while they were working. So you have to consider the level of preparation that had to go into this. They had enough arms for everyone who was working, it seems, or at least most people, to also be armed while they were there. And the idea being is that they had some level of proficiency, not only with the tools of building, but the tools of self-defense. So enough on that. But again, please don't leave out the spiritual component of warfare as well. That is primarily in prayer and in worship. Worship is also spiritual warfare. We need to see that. Our rejoicing, our songs of not just imprecatory prayers are spiritual warfare, but our worship of God, the crying out to him and the praising him and the adoring him, the demons of hell are driven away from a place like that. They can't stand it. We take spiritual ground when we worship God. Those, those regions are spiritually purified when we worship God. One of the things that happens when Christians are attacked is that they can be tempted to, to turn against one another. Right? If you're afraid, you can turn against one another. Right? If people had focused on Sanballat and Tobias and the Sumerian army that's mentioned here and focused on them, they could have made a lot of arguments. A lot of arguments for stopping the wall. A lot of very impressive, pragmatic, Presbyterian-sounding arguments to stop the wall. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with pragmatism in its place, right? We have to use all the aspects of wisdom to make decisions. But they didn't give way to that fear. And we're told in multiple places they warned one another. They encouraged one another. You see in verse 14 the encouragement that's given to everyone. And then verse 15 that all of us is the way it's mentioned. So when God is at work in a people doing something and he's making it happen... He also builds this unity and brings it together, brings us together. And what that leads to is perseverance. God's people will sweat together to the end. There's rubbish. There's resistance. There's body odor. There's a lot of different things that these men are dealing with. And they just press through to the very end. They don't give up. And there's something to learn here about the fact that they didn't take their clothes off except just to wash their clothes. That's warfare speech, okay? And there needs to be that kind of thing about us in our lives where the duties that God has given to us as husbands, as fathers, as sons are so all-consuming as we do these things together that people are going to think that perhaps we don't prioritize properly because we are so devoted to the duty that he has given to us. And they might say, you should wash your clothes a little bit more. Uh, whatever metaphor you can see that that would represent in your life. Now, in conclusion, I hope that we will see that this is the second temple wall. This are the walls around the second temple that are being built. And I want us to end by remembering that we are this temple. Okay? That the... The temple of that time 
was given to point to, of course, Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of the temple, but that his body in the earth, we are now the new covenant temple that he is building one living stone at a time. And so this work that we're called to do, this activity that we're called into, the Great Commission, we got to step back and remember who is the builder? Who is the one who turns dead stones into living stones? Certainly not us. So we want to remember his great work and what he is doing. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So who's the ultimate builder? The Lord is. Of course, we're going to be digging holes today. We're going to be mixing concrete today. We're going to be putting posts and holes. We're going to be getting our hands dirty and doing work together today. And Christians throughout history have always done work. But the only one who can does can do the, the work is God himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have made us living stones, that you are building us together uh, as a temple in this world, and that we are being made like you, and we have the opportunity uh, to build.